and uh, fairly routine in this church during my time here, and I actually think it was routine even before my time, that as it grows near to the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, that the preaching is turned to examine scriptural passages that enlightens us, that enlighten us to the matters related to his incarnation. In years past, I myself have preached about the incarnation or the first advent of Christ directly from the beginning parts of the Gospels of Luke and Matthew, the places where we find the narrative specifically related to that birth. I've also preached uh, from those same Gospels, but focused instead upon certain people present at the scene during the time of the birth of Christ or near the time, considering their words, considering their reactions. I preached about the coming of Christ as foretold in the Old Testament as well, preaching about the incarnation from the books of Genesis, from the prophets, from the Psalms. And this year I went through a process that I've gone through in past years, the process of, of contemplating and praying about what I might say to you this time, what I might say about the incarnation of Christ and where I might go in the scriptures to do that. After talking about that very topic with another pastor, he told me of, of similar preaching and similar experiences that he has done. And with his help, it actually dawned on me that maybe it would be a good thing to talk about the first coming of Christ from the perspective of the incarnate Jesus Christ himself. You see, there are several passages in the scriptures. Within our Bibles, we find these these places where Jesus is quoted. And as he's quoted, there are specific times where he says something like, I came, or I have come, or the Son of Man has come. And then he completes those beginning words, those beginning parts of sentences by saying something about why he actually came, what his purpose was for coming, why he took upon himself humanity, why he left the heavens in order to live a life on this earth for a time with human beings. And so this year, and perhaps, Lord willing, maybe in future years, we'll look at some of those passages. Passages about the incarnation, as the incarnation is understood through the words of Jesus Christ himself. And in that regard, my plan for the next few weeks is to remain in the Gospel of Matthew, and to explore there those types of assertions that have been spoken by Jesus. So if you haven't done so, please turn this morning with me to Matthew, to chapter 5 of Matthew, and we'll hear from Jesus as his words are recorded for us in verses 17 through 20. So let's pray and then we'll read this text. Father, the word that you give us, the scriptures that you have given us, our light to our hearts. We recognize, Lord, that, that our understanding of who you are, of who Christ is, would be incomplete without the word that you have given. And so, Lord, we ask that we would read today and that we would understand and that we would see, especially today, why it was so necessary for Christ to come. Lord, we know that even as we read words like this, our human understanding can be flawed. And so we ask that you would help us by your spirit to understand rightly. You be our guide, Lord. Please be our guide through this text. And having encountered your word, 
We pray that we might be changed, our hearts might be changed, that we would be transformed, and we would live more to your glory. That's our prayer today, Lord. Please answer our prayer. We raise it in the name of Christ. Amen. So again, we're in Matthew chapter 5. I'll begin reading at verse 17. These are the words of Jesus. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Thus far the word of our Lord. I think that most often when we consider the birth of Jesus Christ, our minds are drawn to reflect either upon the ordinariness or perhaps the extraordinariness of the event, or maybe sometimes we reflect on both of those things together. We think about the ordinary providences of a census that causes Mary and Joseph to travel to Bethlehem. Or we think about the simple fact that there was no place to house the couple after their journey. We think about how this particular young mother would be a mother who gives birth and then wraps her newborn son in swaddling claws and lays him in a manger, a feeding trough. Or we think of those extraordinary things, those Events like that of an angel appearing to shepherds to announce the birth of the Christ. Appearing in the very glory of God with the glory of God shining all around him. The amazing and the the visible and dazzling glory of God. Extraordinary as well as the reality that, that the birth announcement is given by this angel. When it's given by this angel, it is an announcement of the one who is born to be the very savior of mankind. And extraordinary is the scenario that finds when the announcement is being given, there is also heard this multitude of heavenly hosts with all their voices joining together, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. But whether your minds drift to the ordinary or the extraordinary or to both, when we start thinking about the birth of Jesus, What is also so very true is that his birth begins what we have come to call his incarnate existence. His birth quite simply is the beginning of the time when Jesus, fully God, takes upon himself human flesh. And that incarnation, that embodiment of God in human flesh is for a purpose. A purpose that will lead to that peace for which the heavenly hosts were singing and praising God for. The purpose of bringing to mankind an everlasting peace with God, a peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. Now one could say that that is truly the ultimate purpose of the incarnation. Jesus 
came in the flesh so that through him God would bring peace to mankind, so that there would be a holy people to be a part of God's eternal kingdom, a kingdom of peace. But what the scriptures teach us is that that peace with God is a peace that is accomplished through a process. It wasn't, it, it really isn't as if Jesus is born and then suddenly there is a, a new peace in this world, a, an unsurpassed peace in which there is no turmoil. That complete peace is yet to be accomplished and accomplished through that process which Christ fulfills. And what we find is that oftentimes he is telling us himself about, about that process. He's, he's telling us in the scriptures why it was ever necessary for him to leave the heavens and to come to this earth. Was the pleasure of Christ while on earth to spend some of his time on some of those occasions teaching and explaining his disciples and to others and then to us through those disciples everything he would accomplish during his incarnate life. And as I've indicated, we will spend some time through this short series in Matthew by exploring those purposes as revealed by Jesus, purposes all associated with him living life in human flesh. Now in this passage that we've read, this passage in Matthew 5, really in the first verse of the passage in verse 17, Jesus actually speaks to us of some about why he comes to this world, but he doesn't do that largely by giving us these reasons why he came as he does by giving us in a negative way, by telling us why he first did not come. In other words, Jesus couches his words mostly at first in the negative in order to dispel the misperceptions that could exist among people as to why he did come. Yet, in doing that, he still does give a word of great importance as to why he, in fact, did come. Jesus speaks of his coming to this world, is necessarily coming to this world, I might add, to fulfill the law. Still also, let me address those negative statements about why he did not come first, just for a moment, prior to getting to that more specific reason as to why, in fact, he did. In fact, we really need to do that, I think, in order to better understand the implication of Jesus coming ever to fulfill the law. What Jesus says is that he did not come to abolish the law, the law and the prophets. And in regard to the law, he, in addition, especially denies even coming to abolish even the smallest letter the least stroke from what the law says. The law of God is to continue, Jesus says. Continue until all is accomplished, until heaven and earth pass away. And Jesus even gets more emphatic as to that continuance of the law when he adds, whoever would even know one of these least of these commandments that God has given or teaches others to do the same well, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And as Jesus says that, he begins what he says with the words, do not think. He is stating with a great emphasis here that a person should not even dare to think that Jesus would come to abolish the law and the prophets. Those beginning words, those first words are almost certainly given to us to reveal to us that there were some among those whom Jesus encountered in the first century, who were thinking exactly that. 
Jesus' opponents during his incarnate life, people like the scribes and the Pharisees that we read of at the end of the passage, were surely thinking and saying that Jesus was a revolutionary, that he was a man seeking to destroy all that remained in that era of Jewish beliefs, of the Jewish faith. Jesus was often being challenged by those opponents. They would accuse him of such things as identifying with sinners. They would level charges against him of Sabbath breaking. At one time, Jesus was questioned as to why he would allow his disciples to eat without first following a Jewish religious ceremonial washing of their hands. And Jesus is obviously speaking here in Matthew into a situation in which it was apparent that some were accusing him of being one who was challenging the very foundation of Judaism. And Jesus responds to those challenges in these verses by saying everything that he has come to do is opposed to what they're accusing him of doing. It is so much to the contrary. Jesus is affirming this continued validity of the Old Testament teaching by affirming the law and the prophets. Jesus is affirming the truth about what the Jewish faith was based upon, the Old Testament law. And Jesus does this. Again, don't miss this. He does this by, by directly rejecting his opposition by saying any thought about that willingness to do that should be the farthest thing from their minds. And I think that really we as Christians in the world today maybe should make a little note of that as well. A note of it because in our circumstances today, sometimes Christians act the very same way. Not because they are so much of the same mindset as the scribes and the Pharisees. No, I would think that there are few Christians today who would be demanding a more legalistic side to their faith. Some maybe, but not many. But still among the many, there are those today who would still evaluate Jesus as his first opponents did. There are those today who would claim that Jesus was opposed to the law of God and that Jesus really did come in revolt against a continuing validity of the Old Testament teaching. Some professing Christians deny the continued validity of the Old Testament at all. But perhaps the less overt way that the Christian today might sound like the opponents of Jesus' day is by saying simply we're under grace and not under law. And really that's a right thing to say. But when they say it, when the ones who are wrong say that, they, they seem to misunderstand grace. They, they, they act as if God's grace it means that it is no longer necessary for holiness in life, no longer necessary to practice righteousness in life, no real duty involved in Christian living, acting as if now we don't need to follow the law of God. We are under no obligation. You would have to reject what Jesus says here to believe that, would you not? If that were the case, you'd have to reject what he says. Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. But as we start thinking about God's law and the demand of God's law and the fact that the demands don't pass away until heaven and earth do, 
what I think should strike us most is what Jesus says at the very end of our passage. Unless your righteousness, your righteousness, Christian, surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In many ways, that statement, the statement that Christ speaks there introduces much of what follows in the rest of chapter five, really going on to the end of chapter seven of Matthew. All of this part of Matthew, you see, this part that we've read and the part before it and part after it are all part of one sermon that's preached by Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. It begins when chapter five begins, it ends when, when chapter seven ends. But what Jesus speaks after the 20th verse of this fifth chapter could be described as if he's speaking about the manner of the law keeping that is necessary to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. The law keeping necessary for the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It's a law keeping that it does require a strict adherence both to the letter of the law and to the spirit of the law. For example, in the paragraph that begins with chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus will speak of the letter of the law. You shall not murder. But then he also speaks of the law spirit, suggesting that one's anger against a brother makes him liable to God's judgment, just as if he had murdered his brother. The next paragraph, the one that begins after that, at verse 27, finds Jesus again speaking against the letter of the law. You shall not commit adultery. But he also then starts describing what that means. He break God's law, he tells us, even with no physical adulterous act, when one looks upon another with a lustful eye. And that type of teaching that comes from Jesus continues on after that for about two and a half chapters. The scribes and the Pharisees of whom Jesus speaks here were abundantly concerned with keeping the law. They were committed to keeping the letter of the law, so much so that they would make a list of rules by their tradition that they would, would direct others to follow that we would deem as overly picky. But they were rules that were established by them with a design to endeavor to strictly keep God's law perfectly. But what Jesus is saying in verse 20 Again, what he's saying in verse 20 is that your entrance into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God, requires an even greater righteousness than theirs, the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones who so cherished a meticulous outer adherence to the law of God. A greater righteousness to enter the kingdom is needed. Because not only does God command our adherence to the letter of his law physically, but he demands our spirit, our soul, our heart, our mind. Every part of us needs to conform with all that God has commanded. Our sinful thoughts, even when they're not carried out, breach God's commandments. Our wandering hearts break his law. And your righteousness to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God must surpass surpass the righteousness of a group of men who were so enthralled with law-keeping that they would come up a, with a list of simple tasks that they would deem as sinful work 
on a Sabbath day, if they were done on a Sabbath day. So Jesus does not come to abolish the law. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke shall pass from the law until heaven and earth pass away. And if your righteous, if your righteousness judged by the law of God does not exceed the practice of righteousness by scribes and Pharisees, so as to engage all of those faculties, so as to practice with perfection the law of God, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. But that makes it all the more important for us to pay attention to what, the, what he says in the rest of the chapter, the rest of the verse. He comes to fulfill it. He comes to fulfill both the law and the prophets. And I have to say that in regard to what he says there, when he says law and prophets, although I've focused mostly so far today on the law of God as being a reference to his commandments, especially his moral commandments, I think that you have to even see something broader when he says that, the law and the prophets. You see, in a way, the law and the prophets was an idiom, an idiom that refers to the whole of the Old Testament. Jesus is telling us here, he came to fulfill all that the Old Testament had said. And when you think about the extent of what that means, what it would mean for Jesus to proclaim that, it means that in his incarnate life, he had a purpose of fulfilling everything the Old Testament spoke about. Jesus fulfills the law and he fulfills the prophet. He fulfills all of the Old Testament. When Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 18:15 that the Lord your God will rise up, raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers to him you shall listen, that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 23, 23, 6, that in the days of Judah, that Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which you will be called, the Lord is our righteousness, that prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, when the prophet Nathan tells King David of an offspring after him to whom the Lord would establish an eternal kingdom forever, that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is our king who reigns forever. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament. But as I have been saying, there is also another sense in which those words that Jesus speaks are also being directed to the law of God in the narrower sense of being his commandments and decrees. And also, I might add, those decrees, that law decree that happens in the sacrificial system as well. Jesus came incarnate to fulfill in his life the law that no human being had ever been able to keep and to give himself according to sacrificial law so as to be the final and the perfect and really the only sacrifice for human sin. So in his incarnate life, in his humanity, our Lord Jesus kept the law of God. He perfectly kept the law of God. You know, we often contrast the covenant of works that God established with Adam with the covenant of grace that exists in which people who are sinful receive God, the Father's grace, through the giving of his Son. 
But in a sense, the covenant of works doesn't ever really stop existing. Not until the whole world passes. Our God is unchanging after all. And when God created man, God did require a perpetual and perfect obedience to his will, all in accord with the perfect sense of justice that God has. To say that Jesus fulfills the law acknowledges then that in his humanity, he was a man of perfection. He existed in his humanity as the perfect law keeper, keeping the law of God both by its letter and in spirit. He obeyed the law by deed and in his heart and in his soul and in his mind. And he came incarnate for that purpose, in part for that purpose, to actively obey the law of God. But what's more, what's more is that he came to obey that law on our behalf, on our behalf. So that when we are in Christ, when we are united to him by faith, his obedience is reckoned to us as our obedience. In Christ, our righteousness does exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees so that we do inherit the kingdom of heaven because our righteousness is not of ourselves. It's of our Savior. We've been seeing this in weeks past, haven't we, as we've gone through the book of Romans? The righteousness of Christ is reckoned to sinners unrighteous in themselves. Jesus fulfills the law. He fulfills the law by keeping it, keeping it not only for himself, but keeping it for us. Jesus fulfills the law. But there's still more. Because to say that Jesus fulfills the law also means that he also fulfills the law of God by his sacrificial death. And he fulfills the law in that way because at creation, humankind was given a penalty for their disobedience to God. The, The people who were created by God as the pinnacle of creation, the first man and woman, were told that they must follow God's will, not eat of the tree. And if they did, the penalty was death. The God who made us rightly has demanded from his creatures that they conform to his image. They are made in his image, they are to conform to his image, to act in godly ways, to be holy as he is holy. Jesus, you see, has kept the law for us when we could not keep it. But he also keeps the law by dying the death that we deserve. He receives our penalty. When Jesus hangs upon the cross of his crucifixion, he is experiencing the outpouring of the wrath of God against the sins of those people who are his, those he came to redeem from their sins as he experiences their death for them under the wrath of God. So he fulfills the law by being the payment required by the law for the sinfulness of human people. He pays our penalty. That is another aspect of him fulfilling the law. And what's more in that regard, as as I've suggested before, that in the Old Testament we're told of this sacrificial system, again part of the law, part of the legal system that was required for the atonement of sin. I mentioned it before. Jesus fulfills that too. You see, the men men who were appointed high priests in Israel before the coming of Christ, they would go into the earthly tabernacle, later the earthly temple, And the priest would offer 
sacrifices to appease God for his own sin, the sins that the priests had committed. And then he would offer another sacrifice to God for the sins of his people, the atoning sacrifice for the rest of the Israelites. And because these, these uh, priests were sinful in themselves, they would com continually commit sin even after the sacrifices were made. And because the people were no different from them, defiled priests were always offering defiled sacrifices on behalf of defiled people. And so the law of the sacrificial system would require the priest to continually make those offerings. But Jesus, Jesus is our high priest who is sinless. He is undefiled. And so when he dies and then resurrects and then ascends to enter the true tabernacle, the temple of the heavens, he has offered himself as the final sacrifice, the only sufficient sacrifice. And with that offering, he fulfills all of the ceremonial law so that no sacrifice under the old covenant system need ever to be made again, nor should it be made ever again. Jesus has given himself finally and sacrificially, and he puts an end to all that part of the law, fulfilling it by his sacrifice, by his own sacrifice, the only sufficient sacrifice. Jesus fulfills the law of God. He fulfills the law of God. You know, I think it's really a good thing for people who know Christ to often spend some time, be it at this particular time of year or another, reflecting upon the birth of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing to do. His birth is certainly worthy of our contemplation. But I do ask that as you meditate on his birth, never think too little of it. The birth of Jesus is not like the birth of any other child. This is true God. True God entering into a world that he has made entering into this fallen world now as he takes upon himself human flesh. And he takes upon that flesh for a purpose, the purpose that is for God's glory, but also for the abundant good of humankind. Jesus was born of a woman so that he might, among other things, fulfill the words of the Old Testament, all the Old Testament, and he took upon flesh to fulfill the law of God, all the law of God. His purpose in coming incarnate was certainly for God's abundant glory, but also for your abundant good, for my abundant good. And I'll say it once more today. For any of us, for any human being, to have any place in the kingdom of heaven, the eternal kingdom of God's heaven, our righteousness must surpass the righteousness of men who prided themselves on their works of righteousness. Our righteousness must be gained through the very of law of God by a perfect obedience to the law. And we all fall short of that standard. But praise God we have a Savior. A Savior who has come in the fullness of time to fulfill for us what we could never fulfill ourselves. Christ is born to live, to live the life we could never live and thus fulfill the law of God that we constantly break so that in Christ we are deemed righteous and are reconciled to God. Praise God for the incarnation of Jesus Christ.
And may our thankfulness never wane, never wane over the fact that through his incarnation, he came that we might be restored to the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom we could never, ever enter on our own. Let's pray.